This is Front Page. We here at Front Page, we do our best to dig out the truth and bring it to you. Hello, all you freedom-loving people. Welcome to Front Page Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Cameron Goulet. The civil fraud case against President Trump continued today in a Manhattan courtroom. Today's witness was President Trump's daughter, Ivanka Trump. The third Republican primary debate is being held this evening. President Trump still didn't attend. Rather, he's having a meeting with his supporters in his own way. In the January 6th case, the judge made a small concession to the Trump team regarding deadlines. Yesterday's Election Tuesday exposed some weaknesses that conservatives have been ignoring. There is still considerable education that needs to be done if we hope to elicit a full return of conservative power in 2024. Israel's counterattack on Hamas has had significant results. The underground fortifications that have been operated by Hamas for many years are likely to become their graves. The Department of Education has taken new steps to warn public schools against promoting anti-Semitic speech. The issue of Israel is a topic that divides the Democratic Party. Congress passed a motion to condemn a radical legislator who encouraged the destruction of Israel. Okay, let's get into it. Ivanka Trump arrived at the Manhattan court this morning in order to testify in the New York civil case against her family and the Trump organization. Ivanka was initially listed as a defendant in this lawsuit. However, a New York appeals court dismissed Ivanka Trump as a defendant this summer, but later they decided to call her to testify. Her testimony came after her attorneys filed a notice of appeal last week to reverse the decision requiring her to testify. However, their request was denied. President Trump reacted to the decision yesterday, saying, now they're trying to bring Ivanka into the case despite the Court of Appeals ruling that she cannot be charged. Sad. Ivanka was sworn in and took the witness stand at roughly 10 a.m. During the trial, Ivanka calmly claimed to have nothing to do with her father's financial statements. She remained polite and composed as questioning continued by Letitia James's lawyer, Louis Solomon. Before the lunch break, Trump defense attorney Christopher Keis objected to Ivanka being asked about the email chain between her and her husband. Keis referred to the emails as spousal privilege. However, Justice Arthur Engeron, after the lunch break, rejected Keis's argument. Judge Engeron ruled that the emails between Ivanka and her husband, Jared Kushner, from June 17, 2013, would be admitted into the trial. In this email exchange, Ivanka asked her husband's advice about a financing deal. The deal was about a loan that Ivanka was trying to secure in order to convert the old post office building in Washington, D.C. into a hotel. Kushner, in one email, says you can get better pricing. Solomon then asked Ivanka about whether it was a good deal. Ivanka replied, well, we ended up doing the deal with Deutsche Bank. Yes, I thought generally the deal terms with Deutsche Bank were positive, and we proceeded forward. Keis also argued that Solomon shouldn't question Ivanka about the emails. He claimed the inquiry was irrelevant and that it was outside the statute of limitations. The prosecution wrapped up their case after questioning Ivanka. The Trump Organization's attorneys then cross-examined Ivanka, and they will now proceed with their defense. Before we move on, we have something that we know many of you are looking for. Why would you give your money to people who hate you? 
That's the question Larry Elder asked when he was looking for a bank. He saw that too many banks are canceling hard-working, law-abiding Americans simply because they don't like what they do or what they stand for. So Larry got together with John Rich, Dr. Ben Carson, and some really smart bankers and technology experts, and they created their own bank, the old Glory Bank. It's built on one simple, strong, irrefutable principle, the United States Constitution, that brilliant document that forged this great nation out of freedom and liberty, those same values created Old Glory Bank, a bank that values freedom, faith and family, privacy, security and liberty. It's a bank named after the flag that represents the fabric of this country. It's a bank that will never cancel you for believing in the greatness of America. Old Glory Bank has one physical location in the heart of Oklahoma, but because they created a seamless, mobile, and online banking experience, they have customers in all 50 states. Old Glory Bank stands with you, so open an account today at oldglorybank.com. It should only take eight minutes. The governors of Kentucky and Mississippi both won re-election in yesterday's election. In Mississippi, Republican Governor Tate Reeves won re-election over Democrat Brandon Presley. Long considered a conservative stronghold, Mississippi has not elected a Democratic governor in more than 20 years, and Republicans control both the House and the Senate in the state legislature. Nevertheless, Reeves faced a stiff challenge. As we noted yesterday, his opponent, Democrat Brandon Presley had more money to spend on his campaign than Reeves and Presley also promised to cut taxes and expand Medicaid in order to attract working class voters. But Reeves has his own record. In his first term, he worked to improve education in Mississippi. According to the State Department of Education, Mississippi's fourth grade reading and math scores on the National Assessment of Educational Progress rose more than any other state in the nation between 2011 and 2022, and Reeves has the endorsement of President Trump. When about 90% of the votes were counted in Tuesday's election, Reeves had 52.25% of the vote and Presley had 46.24%. In Kentucky, incumbent Democratic Governor Annie Beshear won a second term in office by a similar margin over Republican challenger Daniel Cameron, Bashir has also earned the trust of his constituents by virtue of his record of accomplishment. He achieved record economic growth in his first term. In a July poll, Bashir was ranked as the most popular Democratic governor in the country. However, Republicans did win many other offices with GOP candidates, including Secretary of State Michael Adams, State Auditor candidate Allison Ball, and Attorney General candidate Russell Coleman. Currently, there is a super majority of Republicans in the Kentucky State Legislature, and President Trump won the state by 26 points in 2020. But in the last 50 years, only two Republicans have been elected governor of Kentucky. One of the most talked about and perhaps the most decisive issues in the campaign was abortion rights. Kentucky's abortion ban is the toughest in the nation and it recognizes no exceptions for victims of rape or adultery. Bashir still won even though Bashir attacked Cameron on this point for supporting Kentucky's near-total abortion ban. An October TV ad featured 
a Kentucky woman who said that she was raped by her stepfather when she was 12 and she became pregnant as a seventh grader and then she miscarried. The woman says as she looks into the camera, anyone who believes there should be no exception for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. Until Roe v. Wade was overturned, it seemed that most Republicans were in favor of banning abortion. But in 2022, when the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs put the issue back into the hands of the people, the differences in attitudes among Republicans about whether to ban abortion altogether manifested itself. Six states held referendums on the issue that year. They included three constitutional amendments aimed at establishing abortion rights. Pro-abortion voters lost all six referendums, however, which included red states like Kentucky and Kansas. Conversely, yesterday, Ohio, which is a traditionally red state, confirmed the inclusion of abortion rights in the state's constitution. Meanwhile, voters in Virginia handed both houses of the state legislature to Democrats. Heather Williams, the president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, said in a statement on election night, this new era of leadership in Virginia will ensure that abortion remains legal and that the Republicans' MAGA agenda is stopped in its tracks. On November 6th, she told the Epoch Times that Republicans were underestimating the issue as they had in the 2022 midterms. It seems that the Conservatives need to step up their efforts to educate the younger generation on traditional concepts in order to lead the whole society to the right path. The third Republican 2024 presidential debate is being held this evening in Miami. Only five candidates are attending. To qualify for the third debate, the Republican National Committee, the RNC, required a candidate to have received at least 4% support in two national polls. The five who qualified for the latest debate are former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and Senator Tim Scott. President Trump is certainly qualified, but he's not participating in the debate. However, President Trump still planned well to compete with these candidates for voters. President Trump is holding a rally this evening at a stadium in Hialeah, Florida. The stadium is about a half hour drive from the site of the third Republican primary debate. President Trump is using the rally to build support among Hispanic voters in the overwhelmingly Hispanic suburb. A fourth Republican debate has been scheduled for December 6th in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The RNC has raised the bar for participation, requiring participants to have at least 6% support. Certain candidates, or perhaps all of the candidates who are appearing in the third debate, may not be able to participate in the fourth. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chetkin extended a motion deadline in the January 6th case that special counsel Jack Smith is prosecuting against President Trump. Recent documents show that the prosecution has not been entirely forthcoming with its evidence. The defense requested a brief extension of the deadline for filing motions in order to compel, and they requested an extension of the deadline for subpoenas until February of 2024. Judge Chutkin reset the deadline, but she did not extend it to February as President Trump's team had requested. 
She set a new deadline of November 27th for motions to compel and December 13th for subpoenas. Objections to motions to compel need to be filed by December 11th and responses in support of motions need to be filed by December 18th. Objections to subpoenas need to be filed by December 27th and answers to be filed by January 13th. So it's possible that neither side will have a restful Thanksgiving or Christmas. Judging from the progress so far, the strategy adopted by Judge Chutkin is to partially agree to the minor demands of the defense, but she does not budge on the crucial issues. She has been adamant about the March 4th trial date and schedule. A motion to recuse the judge was denied also, and the motion to lift the gag order entirely was also denied. On Tuesday, the Israeli military said that it had destroyed part of a Hamas tunnel under a residential area in the northeastern Gaza Strip. In a statement, the IDF said that soldiers, with the help of reservists, located and destroyed multiple tunnels underneath the civilian neighborhood of Beit Hanun on Monday. The IDF also released a video purporting to show how its soldiers destroyed the tunnels. Hamas has been digging tunnels for decades. Today, these tunnels are no longer just hiding places for people, but they are also used to surprise Israeli soldiers on the ground. Many of the tunnels run underneath civilian houses, and the entrances and exits are located in residential and non-military buildings, making it difficult for the Israeli army to attack without international condemnation. But two days before this offensive, Israel released footage showing Hamas operatives using the Sheikh Hamad Hospital's underground tunnel entrance to enter and exit the hospital. Then they opened fire on Israeli forces from the medical center. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said that the Israeli army is launching an offensive that is fully coordinated with the army, navy and air force. Gallant said that they had one goal in mind to annihilate the Hamas terrorists in Gaza and to destroy the terrorists' infrastructure, commanders, bunkers and communication rooms. The British media had previously revealed that the Israeli army was prepared to use a secret weapon, the sponge bomb, when confronting the Hamas tunnels. However, the Israeli army has not commented on this news. According to the report, Sponge bombs are chemical bombs that can be operated by one person without explosives. They contain two chemical solutions. They are contained in a plastic container separated by a metal partition. When the sponge bomb is placed or thrown at the target, the two solutions mix, rapidly creating a large amount of foam. The foam then quickly disperses and hardens. The use of this new type of explosive to seal the entrances to tunnels is obviously very effective. Glant stated in a television news conference that Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar was trapped in an underground bunker. The trapped Hamas leader Sinwar, mentioned by Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, is known as Yahya Ibrahim al-Sinwar. Sinwar was born in 1962. He is a leader of the Hamas movement, and he is the head of the political bureau in the Gaza Strip. He is the founder of the Hamas security department known as Mejd. Mejd is responsible for managing internal security matters, such as investigating suspected Israeli agents and tracking down Israeli intelligence and security officials. Sinwar 
was arrested three times. The first time in 1982, he was held in administrative detention by the Israeli army for four months. And in 1988, Sinwar was arrested for the third time and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. While Sinwar was serving his sentence, Hamas missiles attacked Israeli tanks, capturing Israeli soldier Galad Shalit. Israel had to take all measures to rescue Galad. A prisoner exchange agreement was reached with Hamas, releasing thousands of prisoners from Fatah and Hamas, including Sinwar. After his release, Sinwar returned to his position as a leader of Hamas and as a member of the political bureau. In September of 2015, the U.S. blacklisted Sinwar as an international terrorist. And on February 13, 2017, Sinwar succeeded Ishmael Hania as the movement's political bureau chief in the Gaza Strip. The Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, warned on Tuesday that schools could lose federal funding if schools fail to combat anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Cardona said there has been an increase in complaints to the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights since the Hamas terrorist attacks on Israel. Eight or nine of the complaints involve anti-Semitic and Muslim-hating incidents on campus. Cardona said, We want to promote free speech, and to be frank with you, college campuses are where students should be able to express different opinions. But when it comes to anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, that has no place on our college campuses or in our schools. At the end of last month, George Washington University experienced a backlash when a student posted an anti-Israel message on the side of the campus library. Politicians have also begun to take a stand. Representative Jared Moskowitz of Florida said on X, as an alumni of George Washington, they should launch an investigation. I look forward to seeing the university statement on this. George Washington University Police later shut down a Palestinian student organization at the university that was behind these actions. The Department of Education is taking a number of steps in response to the current situation. Cardona is asking Congress for more funding so that we can make sure we're expediting investigations against anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. At the same time, the Department of Education is sending guidance to U.S. colleges and universities and to elementary and secondary schools about their legal responsibility under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to provide a non-discriminatory educational environment for all students. The House voted on Tuesday night 234 to 188 to censure anti-Semite Rashida Tlaib for her remark on Israel. 22 Democrats voted in favor of censuring Tlaib while four Republicans voted against doing so. Democrat Representative Rich McCormick of Georgia introduced the resolution calling to censure Rashida Tlaib after she called for Israel's destruction. The resolution censured Tlaib for promoting false narratives surrounding the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. The resolution noted that Tlaib said that the attacks were resistance to apartheid. The final vote had been scheduled for November 8th, but was rescheduled earlier following alleged threats against staffers at the District Office of Representative McCormick. 
Prior to Representative McCormick, Marjorie Taylor Greene had made a similar resolution a week ago, but it did not pass. Marjorie Taylor Greene of Texas reintroduced the resolution after revising it. The House was previously scheduled to consider her resolution on Tuesday night. She withdrew her resolution after the House voted to allow McCormick's resolution to move forward. Okay, this is our podcast for today. Thank you again for listening to Front Page Podcast. For more exclusive in-depth content, please go to frontpageshow.com.